Good morning to you, church. So good to be with you. For those of you that have children that are down in our children's program, uh, just a, a little pastoral word. After service, when you go pick up those kids, be sure and thank the teachers that are pouring into your young ones. Uh, you may not know this about the way we're structured, but our teachers for our children's programs are teaching pretty much every week. And we ask a lot of them, and they understand the importance of their role. So when you see them, give them a, a thanks and honor them for the important role they have in discipling our kids. As Luke mentioned, we have uh, had our Christmas offering uh, the last couple of weeks going to Heart for Lebanon. And um, I did a little research this week and found out we're about 40% to our goal as a congregation, which is great news. You can praise the Lord for that with me. Thank you, Lord. Would pray that uh, you consider about how you might participate in that offering. Again, you can give until the end of the year, either in the plate by specifying the Christmas offering or online. Um, again, the, the goal there is to bless a really strategic ministry in Lebanon to Syrian refugees to help them build this uh, community center and training center, it's an incredible facility. Uh, I really encourage you, if you have the opportunity to participate in that ministry, it's a, one way to make a big impact all the way around the globe. Also, this is a time where all sorts of churches and nonprofits are thinking about their year-end accounting and the like, and we are no exception to that. I would encourage you to be, continue being generous and faithful in your giving. As a church plant, it's really important for us to get to the point where we have uh, enough resources on hand that if we get hit by a wave, it won't put us under. So we're trying to be good stewards of what the Lord has given us, and thank you for your generosity. I pray that you would continue to be moved to give to your local church. Well, this morning, we're going to turn our attention to the Word of God. So if you have a Bible, open it to John chapter 3. John 3, we're going to be in verses 22 through 40. John chapter 3, starting in verse 22. If you don't have a Bible, we do have some available in the back. We'd love to give you one as a gift. John chapter 3, starting in verse 22. This is the Word of the Lord. After this... Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi... He who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in a brief word of prayer? Oh, Father... We acknowledge with John the Baptist that one cannot 
receive even one thing unless it is given from heaven. This morning, would you give us what we cannot provide for ourselves? Would you provide by your word the spiritual food our souls need? Would you nourish us? Would you point us to Jesus? And would you give us a complete joy of knowing it's all from and for him? Thank you for this gathering. Bless us as we now turn to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. It was the biggest mistake in the universe. Now that's a good headline. That was from the New York Times, uh, no, sorry, the New York Post back in 2015. It's referring to a gaffe by comedian Steve Harvey. Maybe you saw it when it happened. He was the host of the Miss Universe uh, pageant that year. And in the moment of culmination of all the competition, he got up and announced, then the winner is Miss Columbia. Miss Columbia was ecstatic, as you might have anticipated. She just won this beauty contest, and yet her reign proved to be rather short. Because it turned out Steve Harvey had read the runner-up rather than the winner line of the card, and he almost immediately had to say, excuse me, ladies and gentlemen, I have made a big mistake. It turns out that Miss Philippines is the winner. And then that moment of horror that the United States watched together as the winner from last year took the crown off of Miss Columbia and put it onto Miss Philippines. You feel bad in that moment. You can feel the, the hurt. You can feel the jealousy maybe in that moment. You know, Christmas time is a perilous sort of time to be a Christian, isn't it? You have the calamity of the whole Christmas card part of the season. People sending updates about their families, oftentimes with a humble brag sort of a feel to them. Let us tell you how perfect our family is. You've gotten a card or two like that, haven't you? There was one family that took the opposite tack. They tried to instead be real and raw and tell you just how bad things actually were. This is how they said it. They said our three-year-old... He doesn't listen when you tell him to go to bed. He only screams and cries until you want to put, kick him out of the house. Our nine-year-old got cut from his soccer team, which is especially disappointing because it's a non-competitive team that doesn't keep score. <laughs> and my dear husband bought a bunch of fishing gear by taking money out of our retirement account. Well... Christmas seems to be a unique time of year. You're around family, you're around friends, and you're hearing how life has gone for them, and you, you have these twin temptations, don't you? On one end, you have jealousy. On the other end, you have pride. And as a Christian, you wonder, how in the world do I avoid both of these and instead have joy? How do I instead have contentment? Well, the passage in front of us from John chapter 3 is put here to show us the way to avoid jealousy, even competition and pride, and to find instead joy and contentment. We'll see it as we look at the example of John the Baptist as he reacts to being eclipsed by the exalted one, Jesus himself. We'll, we'll move through the passage in two sections and, and along the way discover two truths that we need to find lasting, you might even say complete joy. 
First in verses 22 through 27, we'll see that complete joy is found by realizing it's all from him. It's all really from Jesus. Second, we'll see in verses 28 through 30, we'll find complete joy in finding it's all for Jesus, all to be used for him. And as we learn these lessons and take them into our own hearts, we'll discover how to avoid jealousy and competition and instead find joy and contentment by living a life for Christ. Let's begin by looking at 22 through 27. Complete joy by finding it's all from him. Now, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we've had the opportunity to be a fly on the wall as Jesus and a man named Nicodemus had an encounter about the nature of the human heart. Nicodemus was a religious, well-connected sort of man. He, he came to Jesus hoping to find out what was the big deal about this hot new rabbi. And instead he found a man that could see right through him and see the very weakness of his heart. And in the process we saw the weakness of all of our hearts. That we are a people that have darkness within us. That we don't just need a, a new celebrity to follow or a new start. We actually need a new heart. And that's something only God can give us. Then last week we delved into the explanation that the author John gave us for why God does this work of remaking us from the inside out. We said that the reason God does this, does this isn't because of anything good in us or because we're lovely, but because of his love for us. This is just the sort of God he is. He loves the unlovely into something new. Well, now the narrative is shifting. We're returning to a place where we felt like we were just a little while ago, back to John the Baptist as he relates to Jesus. You might remember that John and Jesus interacted before back in chapter 1. John was the, that prophet from the wilderness that came out spitting fire and calling people to righteousness and repentance. And, and John was pointing people to the day when the Messiah would come and usher in God's kingdom. And then one day Jesus showed up. And John said, that's him. That is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. From that day on, John has been fading and Jesus has been increasing and Jesus left and went into Jerusalem, and he spent the Passover feast there. And now the, our narrative starts off with Jesus coming back out of Jerusalem and back to the Judean countryside. Look with me in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. So he's coming back to where he was. Here's the surprising part. And he remained there with them and was baptizing. Now, wait a second. Jesus is doing something new here. Last time he was here, he was being pointed to by John. He was gathering some disciples. And then he went into Jerusalem. He did miracles and preached. Now he comes back out into John's territory, and he is himself baptizing. John also was there, verse 23, baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Even as the author John frames for us this scene, you can begin to feel the tension. Jesus and John end up in the same place, same general area, doing the same sort of ministry, baptizing. Now, now the reason they end up in the same area is pretty obvious. It's that old business maxim. 
The key to a good business is location, 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 right? Have you ever noticed how fast food restaurants end up in clusters? You'll, you'll see a, a McDonald's right across the street from a Burger King or a Wendy's. You'll see a CVS right across from a, a Walgreens. Now, why is that? It's because people that get paid a lot of money understand the importance of a prime location. So they'll move in in an area that's particularly strategic, even if that means moving right next to their competitors. Jesus and John are drawn to the same place because the author John tells us there was much water there. Now, I don't mean to turn this into a sermon to upset my Presbyterian brothers and sisters, but uh, I think the implication is if you need a lot of water to baptize people, that probably means you're dunking them underneath and bringing them back up. But that's another conversation for my uh, seminary professors at Knox Seminary back in Fort Lauderdale, if you're listening. Um, So Jesus and John end up in this same place, doing the same sorts of ministry, which leads to a temptation for John the Baptist. Look what we're told in verses 26 and following, 25 and following. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Now that would not have been an unusual sort of discussion to have. Jews at this time were very keenly aware of the need for purification before God. The question is what manner, what way to go about that purification. Verse 26 tells us that this discussion somehow or the other gets them onto the topic of baptism. And it's not hard to understand why. Baptism is a form of a purification ritual. John and Jesus at this point are using baptism as a way of showing people that they have a need to be cleansed inside in their souls. That's a work of God. Going beneath the water, coming back up, it it pictures a, a sort of cleansing that we're acknowledging before God that we all need. Verse 26 this train of thought leads them to a really, really important question. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he was with you across the Jordan to whom you have bore witness. Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Their question comes in the form of a statement with a very strong implication for John. John, remember that guy That guy that you pointed to and said, that's the the Lamb of God that some of your disciples went after. Remember him? Well, he's back. And he's setting up shop on our turf. The implication is, John, aren't you upset? John, aren't you going to do something about this? Now think what's going on in John the Baptist's heart at this moment. John is not an insignificant figure. Jesus would go on to say, John the Baptist is the greatest prophet that was ever sent, the greatest person that has ever lived until Jesus himself came along. John has been the one that ended the long spell of silence from heaven. John has been the one that has shaken the religious establishment. He's been the one that God has used to bring so many back to repentance, to prepare the way for Jesus. And now John is watching as Jesus moves in on his turf and starts taking his disciples, starts taking people that would have been baptized by John, now are being baptized by Jesus. In that moment, John could have felt hurt. He could have allowed his mind to start to hold a grudge against Jesus as if he's being mistreated here. I mean, after all, they are family, and family knows how to hold a grudge, right? 
In all this, John could have been jealous. But to do so would have been poison to his heart, friends. Because what happens anytime we give in to jealousy or sinful competition, it doesn't do us any good. All it does is destroy our joy. Look at the way John responds, because the way he responds shows us the way out from this temptation. He responds in verse 26. I'm sorry, verse 27. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. John gives us one of those timeless truths that applies to his situation, but applies to every single human being that has ever lived and ever will live on this earth. A truth that if you get deep enough in your heart, it will make you immune to the temptation of competition and jealousy. That truth is simply everything you have is given as a gift from God. Everything you have is given as a gift from God. Have you, have you ever thought about that, friend? Oh, maybe you know a certain few things in your life are gifts from God. Maybe you were praying about getting a particular job or getting into a particular school. And when the, that actually happened, you turned around and you said, thank you, God, for giving me this as a gift, for answering my prayer. At moments like that, that is a right and good response to God. And yet if we take the camera and zoom out a little further, do you, do you recognize that just by the fact that you are a human being, that you are a person made in God's image, living in God's world, means that everything that you have was given to you by God. You are a creature living in a cre creation made by a creator. That means that you did not do anything to create yourself, and you certainly didn't do anything to keep yourself alive and uh, continuing to flourish in this world. Friends, that is God's work and God's alone. You see, when we lose sight of this reality, we fall into the twin temptations of either jealousy or pride. The way jealousy works is easy enough. We, we see someone else that has something that we desire and its cousins envy and... Uh, <clears throat> His cousin's envy and competition quickly follow after, and before you know it, you're no longer joyful. You're just wondering how it is you can get that thing that person has. It can become an occasion for deep-seated resentment, even grudges to be built between even those who love each other. All because we are believing that God has somehow given us the short end of the stick. That someone else has received the blessing that we deserve. And yet, if, instead of giving in to this sort of jealousy, instead if we realize that everything we have is a gift, it totally changes the equation. Uh, consider, for example, a man that had to be humbled in order to learn this lesson. In the Bible, there's a man named Nebuchadnezzar. Back in Daniel, we learned that Nebuchadnezzar was one of the greatest kings that ever lived on this earth. He conquered kingdoms. He built for himself a, what you might call an empire. Nebuchadnezzar was second to none. He had every reason to have a puffed chest and a, a high esteem of himself. And yet one day, Nebuchadnezzar was walking about in his kingdom, and he said, I and I alone did this for myself. 
In Daniel 4, verse 32, we are given the words that were sent to Nebuchadnezzar. What God was going to do to teach him this lesson. He said this, And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Nebuchadnezzar, in order to be brought low enough to actually receive this sort of joy, he had to be made to act like a wild animal, like a cow. He lived out in the field. He didn't wear clothes. He, he chewed the grass. I, I'm sure that must have been fun for his royal attendants to explain to everyone, what in the world is the emperor doing? And yet at the end of it, even this pagan king comes to recognize that God and God alone gives power and gives kingdoms. You see, the way toward lasting joy is to realize everything we have is a gift. You know, I, I'm not one that thinks that end zone celebrations and football games are particularly sanctified. Uh, there's a whole lot of chest thumping and puffing out that happens in those situations. And, and yet, for all that they get wrong, recognize how often you see this basic truth being played out. Sometimes even as the players entering the end zone, they lift up their finger toward heaven. Sometimes it comes out almost as a cliche, like a reflex of, oh, give all the glory to God for my ability to do this. And friends, even if that is not as polished and humble as we would like, let's recognize that all of us owe God a, of, uh, owe God a debt of gratitude for all that we have in this life, even our very lives themselves. Friend, are you good at keeping track of numbers? Have you allowed your business to profit because you're able to keep track of where funds go and think strategically about how to use those funds? It may be easy to look at that and think, I'm pretty good. Except who is it that gave you the mind that you use to crunch those numbers? Who is it that gave you the education to know how to strategically plan? If you haven't been given it from heaven, you can't receive a thing. Do you have social grace? Are you able to win people over and have lots of friends? Are you able to navigate tricky social situations in such a way that other people are envious of? Friend, instead of being prideful about that, recognize that you were given that social grace as a gift from God. You can't take credit for it any more than the breath that's in your lungs. Or have your kids grown up? And by the world's standards, are they doing well? Do they have good jobs? Are they giving you grandchildren? Do you look back on the years you've had with them and you could just say over and over again, my family is an incredible blessing. Friend, who gave you those children? The Bible tells us that God opens the womb and he closes it, that children are a gift, a heritage from the Lord. Friends, all the things that we love about ourselves and are thankful for are gifts from God above. Recognize the opposite is also true. To avoid jealousy, realize that any gift that someone else has is something that God has given them. Is there someone that you are envious of because they have a gift that you desire? Maybe, maybe someone is particularly strong in the gift of faith and you wish that you could move through difficulty 
and see the best possible outcome that God might bring and believe it might happen and you just are envious of that reality. Friend, do you realize that that is a gift God has given them? No gift is to be despised and, and no gift is a cause for us to be jealous of each other. Uh, maybe you're envious of someone who has more materially than you do. You have real concerns for your family. You wish you could provide more for them, more opportunities for your kids. Maybe even a, the good desire of wanting to make sure your family is cared for leads you to the temptation of jealousy, wishing you had as much as someone else. Yet friends, how, how did that person that you are envying, how did they get there? It wasn't because of some mistake, some heavenly accounting error. No, God entrusts and he gifts. He is the one that apportions and, and that also means that he's the one who tells us how we must give an account for how we use his gifts. For us to give in to jealousy and envy or pride is to fundamentally say that the things in our lives that we desire or the things that we are proud of are, are something that we produce within ourselves or things that we are owed. John the Baptist refuses to give in to any of this and he says very humbly, you cannot receive anything unless it's given from heaven. Now that could lead us to a temptation, a, a kind of kicking back and saying, let go and let God. God gives the gifts. We don't get any credit for those gifts. We're not to envy anyone, so that must mean we don't work. We, we don't have to worry about how we use the things we have in our life. I mean, if, if God gives it all, then what's there left for us to do? Well, John the Baptist is anything except a passive person, and from his example, we learn the second important truth. You can find complete joy by finding not just that it's all from Jesus, but it's all for him. Verses 28 through 29. Now, John starts off with a less than gentle rebuke of his disciples. And verse 28 says, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. In other words, uh, uh, disciples, have you been paying attention to what I've been saying? <laughs> This whole thing has really been about saying, it's not me. It's, I, I'm not the main event. I'm not the hero of the story. Should have picked up on that by now. And he continues. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. See, John understands he's not the hero to the story, but he understands he is honored to play a part in it, even uh, honored to play the part he does in it. He uses the image of an ancient wedding to show the honor that he has been given as the one that prepares the way for Jesus. Now, ancient weddings are, have a lot of similarities to modern weddings, um, but there, there are a few differences. So uh, back in the ancient weddings, the, the friend of the groom or the bridegroom, you might call him the best man, he had the responsibility of making sure that the bride and the groom ended up at the honeymoon suite safe and sound. So one of the things that we have written from extra biblical uh, writings is that the, the, the best man, he would go and he would guard the door to the entrance to what we would call the honeymoon suite. And he would stay there. Maybe the party stretches on late into the night. Remember, these parties went on for days. And it was his job to make sure that no one got in there 
except for the one deserving of the true honor, the, the bride and the groom himself. You can imagine his joy waiting hour after hour, doing his duty, this honorable duty, until the moment when he hears his friend's voice and he knows his mission is accomplished. John uses this picture to tell us what he, what he experienced himself, the honor and the joy of launching Jesus out into his ministry, of introducing him to the world. Now, realize that there are some things even today that we know about a best man and their duties. A best man can mess up on a lot of things, but there are a few things a best man is not allowed to mess up on, okay? Uh, the best man can be excused if maybe he shows up a couple minutes late. Um, I've seen a best man be excused for getting the wrong sort of suit pants even once, a very gracious bride and groom. Um, I, there have even been best men that have been forgiven for losing the wedding rings, although that's a, that's a, bigger, a, a bigger bit of grace to be given at that point. But there's one thing a best man could never be forgiven for. That would be if he tried to steal the bride, right? A best man is there to set up the groom and make sure he makes it safely to the other side of, of holy matrimony, right? And that was as true in John's day as it is today. The mistake that John's disciples were making is that somehow John might think that he himself could be deserving of the honor that Jesus was getting. Yet John understands his life, his ministry, his everything is for Jesus. And knowing that truth protects his heart from jealousy and pride. There's a moment in the adaption of J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings where the elf queen Galadriel is offered the ring of power. The hobbit does not think that he could carry it all the way to Mount Doom, and so he offers it to the most powerful elf that he could find. Galadriel looks at the ring, and she has this moment of temptation. She could take the ring. She could use it for good. She herself could rise to the throne to rule Middle-earth. And then at the decisive moment, Galadriel holds herself back and she refuses. And she says, I have passed the test. I will, I will go off and fade into the West and become Galadriel. Her, at that point, her fate is sealed. She will leave Middle-earth. She will lose prominence. She will have her life end by sailing across the sea into the eternal kingdom. What Tolkien is picking up on there is this temptation within the human heart to desire the glory due for Christ alone for ourselves, to somehow sneak in on the heavenly wedding to take the bride for ourselves. And yet there's true joy to be found, friend, in realizing we have an honor. We have an honor in exalting Jesus even if it means being eclipsed ourselves. That's what we see the final example from John the Baptist here. He shows us he understands it's all for Jesus with this last line that's been so beloved to believers for so long because it rings so true in our hearts. Look with me in verse 30. He says, He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. 
John has learned the reality that the greatest joy a person can have is to be eclipsed by the exalted Jesus. Rather than trying to cling to what little glory we have in this world with our closed fingers, we are to gladly let go of it. Allow Jesus to receive the spotlight. Allow him to be the main event. Him to be the hero of the story. And yes, even to fade into the background ourselves. Friends, have you realized that every, every good thing we have, every moment of ours that is praiseworthy, every honor we have one day will fade? You may be able to build a business empire. You might even get into the halls of power within the government. You might have someone build a statue of you or have someone write a song about you if you're especially lucky. And yet, friend, time marches on again and again. Eventually, we are all dust, and the memories of us are entered in the dustbin of history. Even the mightiest kings, men like Nebuchadnezzar, tyrants that try and use their power to hold on to their glory, even they one day are brought low and brought to nothing. But there's an alternative, friend. Instead of trying to hold on tooth and claw, you can joyfully be eclipsed and let Jesus be exalted in your life. Have you ever seen someone do this? Uh, maybe it's someone that allowed themselves to be used by God for years of ministry, but over time, Saw someone younger, more talented, more engaging, rise as a star much higher than theirs. There was a, a man who was good friends with Charles Spurgeon. His church was just down the street from Spurgeon. So at the height of Spurgeon's stardom, he would stand out in front of his small little church and watch the crowds walk by his church to go to the Metropol uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle and hear Spurgeon preach. The amazing thing is he never allowed that to become a source of envy or jealousy. He always celebrated that God would use a man like Charles Spurgeon. And maybe it's done for us as a church. Maybe we hear that God is doing a particular work somewhere, even causing a revival to happen. Do we find joy at the fact that God may choose to pour out his spirit in a special way somewhere else? And bless a people other than ourselves with a unique blessing like that. I was humbled and greatly encouraged by a much larger church just down the street, E91. When we were planted here a little over a year ago, their senior pastor went out of his way to pray for our church as we were being planted. That's an incredible kingdom-minded approach. It doesn't happen very often, frankly. And yet if you understand that you are here for Jesus... And yes, there's joy to be had, even if God were to ask you to be eclipsed for the exalted Christ. Friend, you can have an open hand, and you can exit gracefully so that Jesus would get all the glory. There was a man that you might have heard of, went by the name of Robert Murray McShay. Most of us know him because of his Bible reading plan. If you ever read through the Bible in a year, it's one of the more popular reading methods that he invented. It, it takes you through the Bible, giving you a, a portion from the Old Testament, a portion from the New Testament, a portion from the Psalms. And he was a very pious man. And uh, along the way, he had an incredible evangelistic fervor 
for his church. He prayed that God would give them revival. He prayed for individuals by name. And yet God decided that revival would happen by the hand of another. McShay was asked to go by his doctor to travel for the sake of his health. While he was gone for many months, a fill-in preacher who people were thankful for but didn't think anything of came and filled his pulpit. And do you know what happened? While he was gone, a revival broke out. People started coming to the Lord in droves. McShay heard word of this all the way around the globe through a communication that was given to him. And it's amazing, instead of being envious or jealous, he praised God for answering his prayers. Oh, friends, there is a joy to being eclipsed, to realizing that we are interchangeable parts in God's kingdom. If that's true for one with the honor and prestige of the spot in history of John the Baptist, it's certainly true for each and every one of us. We ought to be thankful to God that he allows us to serve him with our, the gifts he gives us for the seasons he does. And we ought not to feel guilty or discouraged by the fact that those seasons eventually come to an end. Maybe you can't serve the way you used to. Friend, that does not mean God is finished with you. It means he's asking you to glorify Jesus by allowing him to eclipse you so that Christ might be exalted. Friends, my prayer is that we as a church would grow in this sort of joy and contentment. That whatever God has for us, whether we end up continuing to grow as we have over the last year, or if we have a season ahead that's very different, that we would see it's all a gift from God. And it's all to be used for Jesus himself. Because think of the honor that we have. You know, John the Baptist had an incredible honor the place in history he was. He was the, the best man to the groom. But according to Scripture, we have an even greater place of honor than John. Because Jesus is getting married to a bride. And according to Ephesians 5, the bride is the bride of Christ, all the believers that he has saved by what he did on the cross. We're asked to give and give and to pour out ourselves. But we're only asked to do that knowing that he has given us far more than we could ever give back. We're asked to humble ourselves, to let him eclipse us so he might be exalted. But one day we are promised that we will be resurrected and we will reign with him forever. Friends, it may be hard to be brought low for a season. To watch someone else succeed. To watch a season that you especially loved end. And yet when you look forward to an eternity reigning with Christ, doesn't that let you have joy and contentment today? How do you fight off that Christmas catastrophe of jealousy and pride? How do you avoid that sort of sinful competition? Well, the two truths. Find complete joy by remembering it's all from him. Find complete joy by remembering it's all for him. That preacher, Robert Murray McShay, he had a, what some would call, very difficult end to his life. He always had trouble with his health. He lived back in the 1800s, so modern medicine was not there to assist him. So he had to take long breaks in his ministry. Very often would be laid up in bed. One day, 
a sickness came upon him that would be his undoing. He was only 29 years old when he went into a bed to never rise again. McShay continued to minister to people on his deathbed, not knowing that that would be his end. One day someone came up to him and asked him if he was discouraged about the fact that he wasn't out preaching, continuing to bear the fruit of the revival. He responded back, Madam, I am preaching precisely the sermon God wants me to right now. Robert Murray McShay died on March 25th, 1843, two months before his 30th birthday. He was a man that understood everything he had was a gift from God. In his short life, he was eclipsed by many. Many that outlived him, many that bore fruit that he earnestly desired. But friend, he had joy because he knew he was being eclipsed for Jesus. And even to this day, we can look and see his joy through his writings and letters. I hope you're encouraged by this, friends. I hope whatever season God has you in, that this Christmas you will find that joy and contentment by knowing it's all from Christ and all for him, that you can be eclipsed so he can be exalted. Let's pray.